Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 22nd, 2020. On this episode, joining us will be one of our good friends of the show, Jim Callis of MLB.com to recap the White Sox 2020 Major League Baseball draft efforts. Does Jim like the strategy of the White Sox pretty much going all in with Garrett Crochet and Jared Kelly? Well, he will share his views of the White Sox draft class and their strategy, and where both Crochet and Kelly would land in the White Sox top 30 prospect list. We'll also answer your questions at the end of the show in P.O. Sox, but we start this episode on the latest effort for Major League Baseball to try and start a 2020 season. And it seems like the information is changing almost hourly. Uh, So we'll try to play a little catch-up and also look ahead. And I'm joined by the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim, hello. And how are things in your neck of the woods? Uh, It's more or less the same. The uh, weeks kind of blend into each other, and I can't exactly keep track of what I did, you know, three days ago, whether it was three days ago or, uh, three weeks ago, it's a little bit weird, but more or less have come to terms with this, uh, just lack of context and I'm rolling with it. How about you? I believe it was the great philosopher, Matthew McConaughey, who said time is a circle, a flat circle, a flat circle. Yes. Very philosophical, that Matthew McConaughey. No, uh, Chicago looks like things are getting better. We might enter phase four Hmm. uh, next week. And it looks Uh, like you deserve it, or at least there's progress on the curve parts from what I've seen on the charts. Right. I would still, and this is, okay, I'm going to bring out my soapbox. I would still like everyone to wear a mask 
publicly. Yeah. Uh, even if you are at the dog park, please wear a mask. Okay. So I don't look weird, but we should all be wearing masks to make sure that when we enter phase four, we stay in phase four and we don't go backwards. Yeah. Tennessee is uh, opening, but the curve is going the wrong way. You know, new, we're, we're setting records for new cases after, you know, putting a dent in it early and uh, it's not good. And it's just, you know, the... You know, the lack of leadership, I, I think, you know, you can blame individuals all you want for wearing masks, but it's really, I think, a kind of a top-down uh, operation and that you have to have good examples at the top and a strong message at the top to, in order to get it to permeate and change people's habits because uh, here just uh, the mayor has kind of uh, given in to business owners and the governor's uh, pushed for opening even if the evidence isn't there. And then you have a scene like a Kid Rock's Honky Tonk where you have uh, everybody shoulder to shoulder, like one person is wearing a mask in the entire room. And uh, to me, it's just, yeah, I look at that picture. I just don't know how anybody can be comfortable there. I tried dining indoors once. Uh, it was a pretty okay situation except once you realize you're indoors you realize that all it takes is like one large group coming in to change the entire context of the room and how yep. everything is balanced and that made me uncomfortable you know it got in and out okay and it was fine but i realized like i still only want outdoor dining and uh take out and i want the option to just like stand up and leave if i don't like what's going on so to see a group of people you know just a a, a slammed house of uh you know the the typical downtown nashville uh crowd uh just already back into it as if nothing happened even though something is very much happening according to uh the case rates and the hospitalizations and everything it's just uh it's terrible and uh it's just it's leadership i mean that's why i can't get too mad i wear my mask everywhere and i appreciate the businesses that uh you know put a uh you know put a foot down and and you know not not being jerks about it but just you know, strongly urging people, signage everywhere, free masks everywhere, and, uh, you know, having a strong message, because I think it takes strong messages at every turn in order to get people, uh, especially like the holdouts who, you know, don't see the risk, to just understand that it's a risk for other people. Yeah, and, you know, with Chicago, yes, things are getting better, but as we enter phase four, now people can go to the bars. Yeah. And it is now summer in Chicago, and we are quickly approaching 4th of July in Chicago, I will not be going to the bars and I still will not be dining indoors until after 4th of July. I, I'm putting that those parameters for me personally, let the first wave of people go. And if they get sick, I am sorry for their bad luck, but I'm not going to put myself in that position still. Uh, Cause that, that seems to be, uh, the, the, the danger zone, let's call it, is when you get 50 to 100 people standing on top of each other in a bar. Talking loudly. Talking loudly. Uh, not wearing masks. And we all know how bars are so cleanly, right? <laughs> uh, with washing their pint glasses and everything and sharing of the ice. Uh, yeah, it... That just looks like it's going to be a disaster. So if you go to the bars, I wish you the best of luck and report back to me in three weeks. <laughs> How everything is I going. Mean, I, I, yeah, I just, I hope it's not, you know, you don't see that second spike or, you know, related spikes, but yeah, it's just, uh, 
it's tough. And, and yeah, for me, it's a bit different because I moved down here in the middle of it. So I don't have friends to see. <laughs> it's, gonna be, it's really hard to make friends in, in a situation where you really don't want to talk to people you haven't spent time with. So yeah. that's, uh, that's tough. But like it just, you know, my life is what it is right now. I think it might be you know, if I were still in New York and I had my my circles there, it might be tougher at this point to not see. But I'm just in a weird uh weird spot to where just like I, you know, my wife is the only person I know here. And, uh, my goal is to not, uh, exhaust her. <laughs> <laughs> try to find, uh, you know, just try to find interaction elsewhere. So I just don't, uh, bombard her with all my stupid ideas and notions over the course of a day. Like, you know, when you, that's the thing about you know, going in the office and such is that, you know, you make, there's value in small talk and just not having one person have to hear everything you've thought about over the course of the day. Yeah, that's, you can spread it out to a bunch of different people. So is she well versed with what is happening in baseball? Yeah, well, I kind of uh, you know give her the update because you know Tennessee, you know, she's she's focused more on the state uh, stuff. So when it comes to baseball, I kind of fill her on the details. But uh, to when this you know news about the Phillies and Blue Jays came out with uh, you know the the spring training facilities being shut down and then. Now it's up to 40 Major League Baseball uh, players and staffers who are uh, reported COVID cases that uh, she was not surprised. And, you know, she's been bearish on the enterprise of starting or at least, uh, you know, having a, any kind of semblance of a normal season the whole time. And so, uh, you know, just th these headlines, I guess, have been anticipated or at least you know, braced for here. Yeah. And we're going to find out real quick as far as the the latest waves and and just how it's going to impact as far as major league baseball so for those that are listening right now and like i mentioned the intro this information seems to be changing hourly in the last month the disagreements between the league and the players association has been purely financial we had Evan Marshall of the Chicago White Sox on the podcast last week. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that interview, I highly recommend listening to the previous episode so you get a really good perspective from a major league player on how th what his thinking is as far as everything that's involved. Well, a week later, now the coronavirus is really rearing its head, especially in the South. Florida, six straight days, and by the time this podcast is released, it might be seven straight days of setting a new record. As Jim alluded to, the Philadelphia Phillies had five players uh, diagnosed, uh, tested positive for coronavirus, rumored three of them to be on their 40-man roster in Clearwater, and up the road, a Toronto Blue Jays player was working out with the Phillies players and they tested positive for coronavirus. And of course, both of those affiliates are just outside of Tampa, Florida and three New York Yankees employees as the Yankees world headquarters is located in Tampa have now tested positive for the coronavirus. And now Major League Baseball is contemplating pretty much evacuating the state of Florida, meaning no team has their spring training facility in Florida can have their spring training in Florida and the Tampa Bay Rays and the Miami Marlins may have to find another home for the 2020 season using one of their minor league affiliates. And this is on top of the Toronto Blue Jays in which the border between Canada and the United States is still closed. So major league baseball may have to find three temporary homes for their teams 
if they're going to play games in 2020. And we still do not know if that is for sure, as the Players Association was planning to vote on Sunday whether or not to accept the owner's latest proposal. And they have decided not to vote to take into more consideration of what's happening with the coronavirus and the impact that it could have on the players themselves. And while this is not good news for Major League Baseball, it gets worse when you look at it from a perspective of college football. 23 Clemson players have tested positive for coronavirus. 30 LSU players, the defending national champions, have now tested positive for coronavirus. And you will have more college football programs starting their practices to ramp up for the 2020 season in two weeks. So now, Jim, you're Tony Clark of the Players Association. You're playing hardball. You don't want to agree to something in 2020 that will impact the 2021 CBA and put you at a disadvantage. You have to play the game carefully. And you've been playing this game carefully. You haven't been giving in. You've been standing your ground. And while you put the owners in a really tough situation, they have to meet your demands that they want to play in 2020. Then all this bad news happens in this past week. And you go back to the drawing board and ask yourselves, is it that smart of an idea to play in 2020? Yeah, it's, you know, we've been talking about this for you know quite a long time since March and writing about it and writing about the, the idea of restarting the season as the proposals were exchanged and uh, has, you know, covering the plans and counter arguments and, you know, the prorated salary uh, dispute and what was in the March agreement and going back and forth. And it seemed like you know, when I was writing about it, I had to go out of my way to like either at the end of a post or in the middle, just say like, well, and the season might not ha- happen because of COVID-19. Just, you know, it was kind of treated as an afterthought. And when the league brought it up saying that, uh, you know, uh, employees or players have tested positive, it was seemed like just a late uh, addition to the whole discussion is kind of a stalling tactic and thinking about it and kind of revisiting just the whole trajectory of this argument and, and you know, thinking about player goals versus uh, what the league wanted and what especially some, maybe some hardline owners wanted as fewer games. And it makes me wonder why the league didn't take uh, the coronavirus, the, the, the pandemic, uh, you know, put that more front and center in their argument for fewer games because they're kind of doing it. Uh, all along when it came to the idea of, you know, not playing deep into uh, October or deep into November, um, you know, stretching the postseason along because they didn't want to lose the postseason revenue for, um, you know, for having the, the postseason cut short and never really ending the season because of a second spike and, you know, teamed with uh, flu season. And, you know, they, they, they circled that, but it seemed like they never really brought that into the core part of their platform and said they made an entire economic thing. Uh, just uh, the idea of paying players parade salaries at all, you know, playing fewer games, some owners not wanting to play. And, you know, that allowed the players just to have a pretty easy avenue to get fan sentiment. And I think, you know, if the league had embraced uh, the, uh, the whole public health aspect and, you know, there's that story in the New York Daily News about how, you know, some local health authorities has, hadn't been contacted by Major League Baseball to even discuss the feasibility of playing and what the challenges are and what needs to be what needs to happen and what conditions need to be met. 
uh, you know, they didn't do their due diligence there. And so they can't, you know, they can't uh, retroactively go back and say, yeah, we cared about public health all along. That's why I wanted fewer games. You know, that, uh, that cat's out of the bag. But if they made that the public health argument, the, the chief, uh, or at least one of the core components of their platform of fewer games, I think it would have made a whole lot more sense. And it would be, I think, a lot easier for uh, to find common ground because players want to stay healthy and they want to get paid and uh, you know, the league wants fewer games and they don't want something cut short abruptly. So it seems like there's some common ground to where you wouldn't have all this animosity, but they wasted basically uh, a few weeks just on the whole idea of what players were supposed to be paid per game. And that just made the whole thing a mess. So on, on one hand, uh, you know, it's, you can't quite erase that, but I'm hoping that, you know, if this is, you know, indeed like no spin and there there are serious outbreaks of a number of uh, major league facilities that this can kind of recenter the argument for both sides and say, okay, you know, we got a bigger problem than, uh, you know, number of games and what teams are making. We got, uh, we got, or what players are making, what teams are spending. We have to wonder if we're going to get in a full season all, how we're going to do this. We all need to work together on it. And that might be a way to, I guess, suppress some of the uh, arguing over the economics and maybe allow a reset button of sorts where both sides can claim a victory or claim they did well enough against a common enemy and maybe uh, head into the the bigger negotiations for 2021 with a little less uh, acrimony. Yeah, the thing that's lingering over these talks now is... Major League Baseball does not want the Players Association to file a grievance against the league in regards to the amount of games played in 2020. And the way I look at it, Jim, this past week's bad news, and I mentioned college football because I think college football is going to ruin the Players Association's grievance efforts because even if the league decides to activate a 52-game season in which you play your divisional opponents – 13 times and that is your regular season and then you go into the postseason not the expanded postseason but still continuing what they were planning to do entering in 2020 with the five teams for both leagues entering the postseason not changing that is that if Tony Clark and the Players Association try to file a grievance against the league now Jim if they decide the league decide to activate the season in 2020 And if the Players Association filed that grievance because they could have played more games and they want to get paid more or try to earn more of their lost income that was originally scheduled for them in a full season, I think they're going to lose. Because the the league now can say, listen, we were looking out for your best health situation. We saw that the other leagues and the coronavirus is spreading – And the second wave came sooner than was expected. Here's the evidence of other sports that were impacted. We didn't want to take that risk. And we did not want to put the players in a terrible health situation. Like, how do you argue against that point in a grievance setting to try to make the case of, yes, we, the players, should have played more games in 2020? I, I don't even, I don't think a grievance hearing would go the way that the Players Association would think now. And this has changed in the last week because of what is going on around the country with these spikes in the coronavirus. And the fact that colleges are going to get hit really bad with this. 
And uh, we're seeing that players that are working out right now across all leagues. It's even happening with the NFL in in your backyard in Nashville, Jim, a San Francisco 49ers player has tested positive for coronavirus after working with their teammates in Nashville. Uh, that it, it would really do damage as far as to any grievance for the Players Association could have to the league if the league's case is that they were looking out for the well-being, the health well-being of the players, and that's why they stalled so long to start the 2020 season. It would be really hard, Jim, from a Players Association to combat that and say that the league was acting in bad faith. Well, I guess I can see it. Uh, yeah, I'm not a, a uh, well-versed in the uh, specifics of labor negotiations and grievances and so forth, but I can see it two ways. One is that, um, you know, whether it's uh, yeah, the, the means or the ends. And I think in, in, in the case of the ends, like, okay, let's say the season was started on July 1st and, and you know, the league and players came to agreement. Would that season even be happening right now? Uh, would those games even be possible, uh, even if you know uh, they had the most straightforward negotiations to start a season? Like, would they still be struggling to get the season off the ground, or would it be stopped ten games in and nothing would happen? If so, then I can see like the grievance saying like, no matter how the negotiations happened, you wouldn't be getting games. So it is what it is. If it's when it comes to like the idea of uh, you know, you, you can't count or you can't use the end result to judge how the parties conducted themselves, I can still see the union having a case in that they spent uh, a number of weeks arguing over, um, you know, whether salaries should be prorated or not, or whether players should get the full prorated salaries or take 75% cuts. And especially the first, uh, uh, first uh, t- a proposal that Major League Baseball had in which they tried to give different tiers of the union different cuts in order to, uh, maybe turn one side of the union against itself. That's not really a, you know, good faith effort. So, you know, maybe it's an okay initial proposal, but when they dragged their feet and still didn't uh, grant full pay, it wouldn't seem like that was very much part of the uh, agreement. Then uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a case where you can say that uh, maybe the union has a case and it, it's possible too, that, you know, in the grievance setting where, you know, major league baseball has to prove something that the owners would still have to open up their books uh, more than they're comfortable doing. So that's also a reason why they might not want to uh, players to have the right to exercise a grievance, even if they might not win it. So it's complicated and I can see it still being a tool that the union can use to learn other things, even if they don't ultimately win uh, you know, that particular case. That's interesting. I didn't think about using it as a tool to learn more about the finances of the league heading into the 2021 CBA. That is, I didn't look at it from that perspective. And that is a good idea, Jim. I still think they lose that grievance. But in a loss, they would also gain knowledge. Knowledge that would be very helpful for the ultimate battle, which is the collective bargain agreement that will decide the direction of the league over the next four years. Yeah, so that's why I think that's valuable to them even if the you know conditions of the country have changed to uh, where it you know, tilts the decision in the favor of maybe the league now i just think if we're going to have a season i think man i don't even know if the league would be okay with this it really doesn't seem like it's they're going to be okay with it but we're hearing about this olive branch from rob manfred that's being reported that 
all these ideas that they had, the universal DH, the playoff expansion, table that. We'll wait for those talks for 2021. Let's just continue what we were planning on doing in 2020. But Players Association, I don't want to activate this season if you're going to file a grievance. And if the Players Association, Jim, says we can't promise that, then I guess from a league's perspective, why bother activating the season? Uh, you know, the the health of their product and fan goodwill and such. But, uh... okay, I, I get that point, but they have made it very <laughs> yeah, clear yep. they do not care about yep, that. Point. But that's, you know, that's the argument. Um, that is the PR spin. I absolutely understand. Yeah. And the thing with that, too, is, you know, if we're talking about a season that's not a sure thing, even if it does get off the ground, like they might get a couple weeks in before they have to uh, dramatically alter uh the schedule or maybe even call it off, you know, that could be all moot anyway. So that's the tough thing about this whole situation. That's why I haven't treated uh, 2020 as a major casualty, even if the season doesn't happen, because I don't know how you can call it normal or think it will, you know, go off of the hitch. Like the NFL is, I think other leagues have done a good job of pretending that things are going to be normal when they come back. And so that puts pressure on baseball, <laughs> yeah. which hasn't started yet to put base uh, to, uh, you know, to, to get started uh, peacefully. But, you know, as you mentioned, college football, NFL is going to have some similar issues. I think NFL is also going to have a major problem when it comes to like televising games and full speed impact in front of no fans and just having these massive hits and potential, you know, concussions and so forth uh, met with silence. That strikes me as really creepy, and I, I don't know how fans and you know are, are going to respond to that, and how the league's going to respond to that. That that strikes me as uh, as bad. <laughs> and uh, well, the league will just pipe in music and and that sound gen yeah. to prevent that from happening. They're not that dumb. They'll they'll that's what they'll. Yeah, do. it's still going to be weird though. And then and you have it's going to be weird. Yeah, the NHL is yeah. trying to come back under a bubble, but like the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the Florida teams. Tampa Bay Lightning had to uh, cancel. Austin Matthews has tested positive. He's one. Of the stars of the National Hockey League, yeah, and the NBA has some problems with its Orlando bubble, at least, uh, uh, you know, in trying to get that in gear. I mean, they have a pretty sweet setup. <laughs> it's a pretty sweet summer camp, but uh, it's also in Florida, which is uh, what other leagues are right. running away from. So, and Disney still wants to open up the park. Yeah, so it's like you have a bunch of things happening for all sports that all of a sudden make baseball look like. Uh, not like it has its act together, but it just looks like, uh, oh, it's it's hard. You know, it's it's not just baseball's fault that it can't get started because this is going to be complicated no matter what. So that's, I think, you know, the one, yeah, I wouldn't call it silver lining, but just the reality is that the coronavirus, uh, the, the pandemic is just bigger than everything, even if you don't want it to be, <laughs> even if leagues are trying to pretend it isn't. It kind of is. And uh, it might be unfortunate, but just it's, uh, it's affecting everybody. And even if you, you pretend it isn't, and you try to do business as usual and have a plan to get off the ground. Um, you know, as Mike Tyson says, everybody's got a plan to get punched in the face. And, uh, that's what's happening right now. I think, uh, you know, to, you know, the baseball has been punching itself in the face, but the other leagues are, uh, <laughs> you know, just having, uh, you know, coming around the realization that, uh, yeah, their best laid plans, uh, may not be good enough. Yeah, the other leagues might be laughing at Major League Baseball on the way that things have transpired. But in these next two weeks, especially when colleges and the college football programs are returning to campus, uh, this is going to be then this is going to become football's problem. 
And when football's got a problem, then let's face it, America, America's got a societal issue if football becomes impacted. And if football gets delayed, then people are going to lose their damn minds. (laughs) They just will. I mean, they will. Especially in the South, especially in Florida and Texas. Oh, yeah. I guess my uh, hopeful spin on it would be that, you know, the country didn't take it seriously till the NBA shut down. So maybe if the NFL realizes it can't conduct business, that maybe it's just another one of those, uh, you're kind of like smelling salts and that just like, oh, yeah, this is uh, we're, we're not normal. We're not going to be until, you know, a whole lot more unified efforts uh, against this uh, knocks down the uh, case rate. And that's going to be a difficult pill to swallow for those in Chicago and those in Illinois when we're entering phase four. Yeah. But, you know, that we talked about that before when, when uh, you know, they're discussing the Arizona bubble and the now hilarious Arizona, Texas, Florida plan. <laughs> Just saying that, you know, yeah. different parts of the country are going to be on different timelines. And by the time, you know, New York gets out of it, uh, you know, Arizona and, you know, the, the, the spring training sites might be uh, in the thick of it. And look what's happening. So, right. Right. It's a big country. It is a big country. But from my perspective, as far as with the Players Association and the league on what what may happen early as far as this week, I don't think the union is going to vote in approval for the 60-game season, Jim. I think they're going to go back to the league and tell the league, listen, if you want a season, tell us when and tell us where. Activate the 50 game season Rob Manfred is going to ask Tony Clark I don't want to do that if you're going to file a grievance against us and the union will say we can't make that promise and I think that is going to be the sticking point whether or not we have a 2020 season if the owners are willing to activate the 2020 season knowing that the players association will file a grievance against them and if they're not comfortable with that Jim we could see more stalling and the more they stall Jim, then you get into the logistics of, I don't care how many games you're playing. How are you going to pull this off? Because now, not only do you have one misplaced team, which where are the Toronto Blue Jays going to play now? Buffalo, that's their AAA affiliate. But if it gets really bad in Florida, you got to move the Rays and you got to move the Marlins. And where are they going to go? Because Florida, I think Miami has two affiliates in Florida. They have their other affiliate is in Wichita. So are the Miami Marlins going to become the Wichita Marlins? And they still got to like play the Utah games. Jazz. Yeah, exactly. And, but they got to still <laughs> play their National League East opponents, even though now they're in like in the middle of the country. Like that's not geographical. Yeah, I, I would think that the league might just find a you know a site that isn't. An affiliate of theirs and just make it work like well, force it to hand like eminent domain i think charlotte yeah something like that might be more feasible yeah, to say. you can move one team to charlotte yeah canapolis uh, is sitting empty you can move one team to canapolis yeah just have the uh, white Sox circuit as turn the nl east and that but no it, it's you know when you're thinking about it just uh as sad as it is and unfortunate as it is if the coronavirus you know the the pandemic is indeed like you, you, if they can't beat it, like no matter what, you know, if time goes on, if the, you know, if the league says, uh, or if the union says we're not signing, tell us when and where the league stalls, tries to make it 50 games. And then just the, 
the toll, the economic toll, the uh, geographical toll of the uh, pandemic on the baseball schedule and the base location of baseball teams just might make it so farcical to even start a season that basically like maybe a majority of everybody involved and everybody watching will say like, yeah, this was never going to work. Like <laughs> this is all, all, uh, you know, just, uh, really wishing and hoping, but it's not going to happen this year. And that really might be the best thing for both sides. Uh, and everybody involved just say like, you know, whatever arguments we had, uh, they're all moot now for better or for worse or for what, you know, what leverage we had and what, what leverage we lose. Uh, it's all moot anyway. It can't be grieved. And we can just go on and start talking about 2021 and the big CBA issues. And that just might be better for the whole thing. I think, you know, this 2021 issues were going to be difficult and, and maybe cause a labor stoppage no matter what. And I think just to add a whole different set of complications, including a pandemic that nobody exactly knows, you know, what direction it's going to take and what the implications are and even how the virus behaves. And, you know, <laughs> they still haven't really figured out like a, a optimal treatment for it yet that, uh, you know, it just seems like too much. So that's what I'm thinking. Like, you know, if time goes on and just no matter what we're talking about, that just there is no way a season could be conducted. Uh, it might ultimately be, you know, not the best thing for both sides because it sucks, but it might be just the way to proceed into the the, the, the meatiest uh, negotiations with the fewest hurt feelings and, and bad blood. Well put, Jim. Well put. Well, you guys had questions about a possible season in 2020, we did run a poll on Twitter asking you how many games will Major League Baseball play in 2020. The three options were the 48 to 52 games, which is what the league would activate. The 60 games is the latest proposal from the owners to the Players Association or no games played. And the most popular answer was no games played, 43%, with the 60 games being at 34% and the league activating the season at 22%. Uh, so if you're thinking that we're a bit dour, those that took the poll uh, are also kind of sharing that feeling of we're probably not going to see any games in 2020 uh, for a variety of reasons. And as Jim mentioned, that does suck. But you guys did have some questions later in the show during P.O. Sox about this topic, in which Jim and I will answer those at that point of the show. But coming up after the break, Jim Callis of MLB.com will be joining us to recap the Chicago White Sox 2020 Major League Baseball draft class. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Join us now on the Sox Machine Podcast to recap the 2020 Major League Baseball draft is our very good friend from MLB.com, its senior writer, Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for coming back on the show, and you did a terrific job 
uh, despite the circumstances of having to broadcast from home uh, during the MLB Network draft show. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. And, and who would have thought if, if you told us at the beginning of the year that we would break down every one of the White Sox draft picks on this podcast? Uh, we would have said, what? How are we going to break down 40 guys? But it uh, it didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it didn't. I am. I have to say, this is where you are the clear cut above everyone else. The fact that you had a scouting report. For Addison Coffee, when his name was announced in the third round, I had no idea who he was. I had no idea that junior college existed. Oh come on, but Wabash you, Valley you knew. players! Come on, you got to know <laughs> You got to know Wabash Valley. They they had a great team last year. Um, they I think they went like fifty eight and four and, and lost twice in the like district finals. But um. Um, I, I will wow. confess, I did not like. I have a sheet. <clears throat> Usually, we and I prepared like I would for a normal drafts. So I prepared for what would have been a normal day two broadcast. Would have been rounds three through ten with with senior signs and and, and all kinds of guys on that senior sign. You know, senior signs, high school players, whatever. I had I think four players from Wabash on my list, and I did not have Addison Coffee. So. I guess I made it look a little smoother than it was because when he was drafted, like I knew, I knew the name, and it's because he was a prospect coming out of Indiana as an Arizona, going to Arizona State as a shortstop, and then he was on my radar last year, but he wasn't a Wabash, and I'm like thinking, why do I? Where was it? And he, I think he was at San Jacinto last year, but uh, I, I texted some guys, and I will even give the White Sox credit. Mike Shirley texted to give me a heads up with a little information. So thank you to Mike Shirley mm. for that. Um, and uh, I did. I was not uh, on the ball. Not on the ball as much as it seemed, Josh. But they they had a second round pick last year by the Brewers too. Antoine Kelly. They've uh, you, you got to get up on your Illinois JUCOs. Come on. I do. That is the lesson. Every draft I am learning, Jim. And this is the lesson I need to take away. And the next is understanding and knowing the Illinois junior colleges. Cause there's some yeah, good ones. There's like... good players. Like I said, second round pick, like you know, Kevin Kiermeyer came from Parkland. There, there's an obvious one. Like there, there's yeah. always a couple prospects uh, in the Illinois Juco ranks. But yeah, I, uh, I, I was, I was thrown a little bit for loop. And, and that one was nagging. Like the one that got me first was when the Rangers took Evan Carter in the second round. I had like 10 or 11 Tennessee high school guys who I thought had a chance or at least were on my radar. And, and he was not one of them. Um, but like Addison Coffee was like, like one of those where I'm like, okay, in the back, like I know the name, like like where is he, like like I know, and it, I think it was because he'd been on my list previous years out of Indiana and out of San Jack, and I'm like sitting there looking at my list, going, wait a minute, I know I know this name for some reason, but my Mike Shirley and my, and my area scouts bailed me out on that one. Yeah, well, Coffee was committed to Louisville, so that's where he was planning on playing in 2021. Uh, but instead, he signs for $50,000, and he's with the Chicago White Sox. But when it comes to the White Sox in this draft, Jim, uh, it is all about Garrett Crochet and Jared Kelly. And prior to the draft, we we texted each other about what the White Sox could do at pick 11. And we agreed that the dream would be Reed Detmers if he fell to them, uh, with the fallback plan being Garrett Crochet. And it did work out that way, as Detmers went to the Angels at pick 10. I'm surprised that Jared Kelly was still on the board at pick 47. And I think Mike Shirley and Rick Hahn had a good draft pulling those two pitchers in and add them to the farm system. What do you think about the overall White Sox draft class, Jim? Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. You know, and, and one thing I was just going to say, I never could pin down, could quite pin down if 
that Detmers was the lefty they really wanted, or if they would have taken Garrett Crochet over Detmers. But, but you know, it didn't matter because Detmers was off the board. But, no, I mean, what they basically did is, you know, we've talked about this many times. You, you can only trade your supplemental draft picks. It's a handful of picks. Well, what they essentially did is traded their third, fourth, and fifth rounders to, you know, theoretically move up from the second round to the first round to get Jared Kelly, you know, in terms of how they used their bonus pool. Um, you know, and, and we talked – Maybe even on a podcast, Josh. I mean, there was a lot, you know, this this idea that like there was a high school guy that the White Sox really really liked, and who was it? And there was a lot of thought it was Jared Kelly, and that they might take Jared Kelly at eleven. Um, so they they basically got, in my mind, two first round picks. They they went all in on their first two guys, um, and you know I, I don't mind that. You know, it, you know, the third rounder Addison Coffee, the fourth rounder Cade Meckles. Um, and the fifth rounder, you know, Bailey Horn, were all taken with, with with significant discounts in order to make room to pay for for Jared Kelly there in the second round. And, and I think the reason he fell, I, th- I think one, I mean, I, I think he got nitpicked slightly. Well, there's three reasons. One, I think he got nitpicked slightly. Of the top three high school pitchers in the draft, he was the only one who pitched. And his body, I mean, you're reading so much into like just a couple of outings, his body looked a little softer than it did last summer. And he wasn't as dominant. I mean, he was good, but he wasn't as dominant as he was um, at the area code games last year when he had one of the best area code games performances in the history of the event. So I think he got nitpicked. Two high school right-handers always go lower than they're ranked by the media. It's just the industry's, you know, kind of afraid of them. And three, I mean, there's obviously signability issues. It, like, I'm sure he had opportunities or inquiries in the first round, and he turned down the numbers that were being offered. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know what the White Sox number is. Um, you know, doing some quick math here, like, you know, with by signing Coffee, Addison Coffee and Cade Meckles for sixty thousand between them, it looks like they already got Jared Kelly up to two point seven five million. You know, and that you know, I don't know what the wiggle room is going to be with Garrett Crochet or Bailey Horn. You know, maybe they're even giving him more than that. But you know, I, I think this was just a, first and foremost. I think it was a case of, and this goes on a lot, that they probably knew if they got to the White Sox, they were going to get a certain number, and if nobody else offered them that number, they were going to turn it down. I mean, it was similar to what happened in the first round. To Tyler Soderstrom, who we talked about a lot because the White Sox seemed to be very high on Tyler Soderstrom. And the thinking was Tyler Soderstrom was probably going to go to the Giants, and the Giants wanted to save money with a 13th pick, and they offered him less than the A's let Tyler Soderstrom know that if he got to them at 26, they'd give him more money. And so that's why Tyler Soderstrom went 26th when a lot of us thought he was going to go in the early teens. We did get a question from one of our fans and listeners, Matthew. And Matthew is asking, does Jim like the White Sox strategy of going arguably two top 25 players in a deep draft, or would they have been better off overall picking players they could have had at slot value? This is essentially a two-player draft, but White Sox second-rounders don't make the majors ever. Uh, So is taking the highest upside play the best move for the White Sox? (laughs) And to add to that, Jim... I wrote about this on draft day before the draft started on the different draft strategy strategies the White Sox could go. And I feel like this was a modified version of what they did in 2019 when they got Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist in the second and third round. They signed them both for $2 million, which was way above the slot value for those picks and then punted their fifth to 10th round selections taking college seniors and offering them ten thousand dollars that this was a possibility and i felt like after this draft they just did a modified version of the 2019 draft 
Do you like the fact that the White Sox have gone this route in the last two years, really front-loading their draft class? Yeah, I mean, you could you could slice up the draft a bunch of different ways. And I personally, if I were drafting, I would probably adopt this sort of strategy. Now, I mean, this year's draft, it, it, it's, I was going to say, extremely extreme because you only had five picks and you had a guy who, you know, should have been like a mid-first-round talent there in, you know, in the second round, middle of the second round. Um, <clears throat> I don't mind it. I mean, I, I just think when you draft, I mean, you, you should have conviction in what you're doing. And I, my underlying feeling is you win with stars. I would rather – I mean, you can't necessarily do this year in and year out because it's it's going to perhaps lead to a less deep farm system, and you need some depth too. But I think you win with stars. Now, the one exception I always cite is if you look at the 2005 White Sox, I don't know if that was a really team that had a bunch of stars. They were just kind of good at every position, and they were, they were just solid. But in general, you win with superstars. So I would – if I were drafting and I do my own you know, kind of self-drafts every year um, – and I usually do a version of this where I try to take basically the best player on the board as long as I can, and then in a you know normal you know forty round draft you know where you have a normal ten rounds you know take some slot guys maybe in rounds four through seven four through eight and, and then go college seniors at the end. But I I don't mind this, and it's funny my my son who just finished his master's thesis at Oxford on economics of the draft, he actually thinks by studying it, that you should go in the other direction and look, not necessarily to go cheap, but look for a little bit of a deal with one of your first two picks, or or a decent deal. Like I think his strategy would be, you take the best guy on the board in the first round, you... Who who's signable? You know who's not like a way over slot guy. You look for a discount in the second round. Like you have a pool of players, you take the guy who gives you the best deal, and then you can go big later. But um, you you can slice it up a bunch of different ways, and, and I don't mind this. I mean, you know, I mean it, it's essentially Crochet and Kelly. You know, Coffee and Meckles were, were drafted primarily to you know for their discount, and you know Bailey Horn the fifth round, and we'll talk about him I'm sure in a second. He was one of the better redshirt juniors available in the draft. And I do think – like, he probably comes with a discount because he's already 22. Um, but I also think in a normal draft, Bailey Horn goes in around 6 through 10. Like, 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 and not as a, a $5,000 guy. Um, you know, there was interest in Bailey Horn. You know, he's a lefty with, with multiple pitches. So he wasn't – like, you know, Coffee and Meckles were – Kind of, hey, we kind of like these guys, and we can get them super cheap to pay Jared Kelly. Bailey Horn, I, I think the, you know he, he's kind of in a different class from those. I guys. agree. I think Bailey Horn is the third best player the White Sox took in this draft class. And if you want to see Bailey Horn, listeners, you can go on Watch ESPN, and they have Auburn College baseball games, and you could watch Bailey Horn even against Chicago State. Uh, his last start of the season, and he looked pretty good. I mean, it's a 90-94 mile-per-hour fastball. Uh, the slider sweeps more than spikes, but it looks like it's, it'll be a good strikeout pitch. It's still a long shot, but no, this is someone that could you know, definitely make it all the way up to Birmingham uh, as far as his minor league career, and who knows if he gets to AAA, uh, then the White Sox have that much-needed starting pitching depth uh, in their farm system. And Cade... You know, Mikhail's out of Grand Canyon University, just watching as far as some of their streams, he looks good, Jim. It's just, it's unfortunate for him because he had Tommy John surgery in May. And he's going to be out until mid-2021, looking at what the minor league season would be. 
Uh, so it might be a long road ahead for him. But for White Sox fans wanting to know more about him, uh, what are some? Uh, what's his scouting report as he joins the White Sox? Yeah, anyway, and I'd say plus him and Coffee were really kind of lottery tickets. I mean, it wasn't just like, hey, these guys have no shot. You know, Aston Coffee, you know, is a converted shortstop. You know, he hasn't pitched a lot. He's still raw on the mound, but he's up to 95. So, like, you know, it's interesting. There's something there. And, and when you focus on pitching and, and you get, you know, you're doing it full time, you know, I don't mean just full time pitching, I mean full time like a job. Like, there's a chance for improvement. And, and Meckles, you know, Meckles is a guy who, who I, I believe was drafted last year, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, he's a pitchability guy, changeup's his best pitch, you know, throws strikes with multiple offerings. Um, you know, he had, you know, like you said, he had the Tommy John. So, that, I mean, that's why they got him, you know, for $10,000. But, again, it, it's not like they just made him up. I mean, he, he, was, a, 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 he was drafted last year by the Marlins, um, you know, turned him down. So, I mean, it, it wasn't like, you know, they just kind of invented this guy. I mean, you know, somebody took a flyer on him last year, didn't get him signed. Um, you know, so you're, you're kind of, you know, it's – you're you're getting Jared Kelly in the second round, and you're you're kind of taking lottery tickets in the third and fourth. You know, at a very minimal investment, hoping they pay off. Yeah, Michaels was a was a good college performer too. He had a sub three ERA the last two years, and just unfortunately uh, ended his 2020 season getting Tommy John surgery. Uh, so back to Garrett Crochet. After the draft, there were whispers after day one that not every one of the White Sox Zoom draft room was on the Garrett Crochet bandwagon that some were stumping for prep right-handed pitcher Mick Abel. Four years from now, while you and I conversing about the draft and the top 100 MLB pipeline prospect list, do you think there could be any regret on the White Sox part not taking Abel at pick 11? Well, sure. I mean, and and, and I'd say too, and I hadn't heard that about the you know, in house, you know what the, what the thoughts were. I mean, I would say that's typical with any pick. I mean, unless maybe you're the Tigers taking Spencer Torkelson at one, like there's there's always going to be like like I actually think it's healthy if everybody was on the same page. Saying, oh yeah, 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 boss Garrett Crochet. Like that's not good because then you're you're just telling your boss you know what he wants to hear. You know, like you you want everybody to tell your opinion. I mean, look, I mean that one could go either way. We we had those guys ranked pretty close to each other. Um, you know, and they're pitchers. Anything could happen. Uh, you know, I really like Garrett Crochet. You know, we talked about him. You know, he. I, I really think him missing three weeks this this spring with 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 mild. I can't still can't say shoulder soreness. <laughs> I have to pause. With mild shoulder soreness was really a precaution. I really think what that was was he wasn't a hundred. He wasn't feeling a hundred percent. He had a little soreness. And before everybody knew what the season was going to be, Tennessee's attitude was, you know what, let's just take three weeks off and get you ready for the SEC season, which makes perfect sense. And then, as it so happened, he made one appearance, and then the year ended. Um, but, I mean, we're talking about a guy who last fall, uh, when he, you know, he pitched you know, in fall ball repeatedly, he was 96 to 100. It's super high spin rate on the fastball, so it plays even better than that. Um, you know, he was 91-97 the previous spring. He's got, you know, high spin on an 82-85 mile-an-hour slider. He, he's 6'6", so it's, like, different, difficult angle on his pitches, especially on lefties. You know, what's funny is, like, you know, like people were saying, like, on our draft broadcast, oh, I don't know about the changeup. I had guys tell me they saw a well-above-average changeup in the fall. Like, you didn't see it in the spring because he pitched one time for three in the third innings. But... You know, I mean, you know, now look, you know, there's not a long track record of, the, of this kind of stuff because it kind of made that jump in the fall. He split time between, 
you know, the, the bullpen and, and starting his first two years at Tennessee. But, I mean, this is a guy who I, I think was probably a second-round pick coming into the year or coming into the fall. So it, it's really good stuff. And, and, you know, and then the flip side, I mean, Mick Abel's really good too. I, I thought Mick Abel was the best high school pitcher in the draft. Um, you know, you're talking about a guy who was kind of 93, 95 during the summer. It was up to 98, you know, in, you know, bullpen workouts because he didn't get to pitch in game he's got a hard slider that might be the best in the in the high school class he's got some curveball uh, in there too he's got advanced feel for a change up so i mean both those guys could be pretty good i mean i mean honestly you know if you talk about regret i mean we had those guys ranked pretty comparably um you know, I'd say it's probably, honestly, 50-50 because, I mean, they're two guys, you know, ranked pretty close together. I mean, it's the same thing. You could say the same thing, though, with the Angels. It might be 50-50 that they're going to regret taking Reed Detmers over Garrett Crochet. Um, but, you know, I, I don't have any problem with them. And if, if we have a season, and, I, and my if kind of weighs, Josh, more on – COVID, then, I mean, there'll, there'll be some plan instituted at some point, I guess. Um, I mean, I think with the White Sox contending, like, I could easily see, you know, why not use the Garrett Crochet, uh, Garrett Crochet path, the Chris Sale path with Garrett Crochet, and just use him as a as a reliever this year if you're trying to contend, and then, then worry about making him a starter later. I know MLB Pipeline, you guys will be making your adjustments to the team's top 30 prospect lists uh, after the draft here uh, to include the new draftees. But do you have a good feeling on where you would plug Crochet and Kelly into the White Sox top 30? You know, it's interesting because it's not based solely on draft status. But, you know, we had Kelly a little bit ahead of Crochet, but, you know, the White Sox took them in the other order. So I, I think I would be inclined to pro- – I mean, my guess is, one, I'll rank them probably back-to-back. Um, I mean, honestly, it's actually pretty easy because we keep talking about how, how their system's kind of top-heavy. I mean, I think you put Crochet and you put um, Kelly like right behind Nick Madrigal and in front of Jonathan Stever. Yeah, so it does lengthen. So I'm done. I've, I've, I've updated our White Sox <laughs> list. I'm done. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Seriously. And I wrote both those guys up. Those are both my scouting reports on our draft 200. So I'll tweak them slightly to reflect what they signed for. I mean, it, it literally is going to take me, you know, I, you, usually when you have me on this time, I'm agonizing. Like, what do I do with all the outfielders? How do I separate Adolfo and Basabe and Gonzalez and Rutherford? And what am I going to do? And this year it's going to take me like, like five minutes to update the White Sox list. Well, that's good news for you. That is. Yeah, goodness. I'm done. I, I just got that taken care of. So, but yeah, I mean, don't, I mean, doesn't that feel like a logical spot to put them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're not going to go ahead of Madrigal, and I do like Jonathan Stever, but I think they both go ahead of Stever right now. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm done. I'm good. Yeah, eventually, when Kopech and Madrigal graduate uh, from the White Sox, and also Luis Robert too, uh, then I mean, we're looking at Crochet and Kelly being the White Sox. Number one, number two prospects. No, no, no don't, don't forget about Andrew Vaughn. Oh, Andrew don't forget Vaughn. About Andrew. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. See, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting rusty here with no games. I am too. It's like you <laughs> keep forgetting who's in these things. But, yeah, they will be the number two and three prospects. If if we have a season, I would expect that Robert and Kobeck and Madrigal will, will all – well, it might be tougher to graduate with a 60-game season or whatever we have. But, yeah, I mean – like, if those guys all graduate, it'll, it'll be Vaughn 1, Crochet 2, Kelly 3. Now, we did get a fan question from Mark, and I think this is a pretty interesting question. Back to on how the White Sox draft strategy. How would the White Sox draft have looked if the White Sox elected to not go well over slot and draft Jared Kelly 
in the second round, and in essence, uh, punting their third, fourth, and fifth round picks. But instead, if the White Sox had taken the best available and signable player at picks two, three, four, and five. Okay, let's play. I'll play along here. Let me let's let's take a look. Yeah. Well, you know, like we, okay. So here's the thing: we don't know what their preference. Like, I, I obviously don't have their list, but I, but I can play along by looking at our draft board. Uh, I mean, and looking at the draft. So, like in the second round, looking at you know, like you know, and I'm going to just like the right after them, the Reds took Christian Rowe, who we had ranked 89th with the 48th pick. But so if you're looking at guys who who would have fit in that area and been signable for theoretically around slot. I mean, the, the obvious guy would <laughs> they'll, they'll they'll pick the Cubs' pocket and take Burl Caraway out of out of Texas, out of Dallas Baptist, the best reliever in the draft, a lefty, um, you know, who's going to fly through the minor leagues. They'd probably take. I, I'd say they'd go Burl Caraway. I mean, this is a little bit we're making assumptions here because I don't know what their board looked like, but they get Burl Caraway in round two. So then they come back in round three. I'm looking. I'm looking. That guy's too much. They have a couple expensive guys now. Like I think they could get Casey Martin out of Arkansas in the third round, um, who you know they'd have to go over slot for him. But if they if they could juggle a little money, you could get Casey Martin, who we had ranked thirtieth, who's probably going to sign for about five hundred thousand more than their slot. If they went slot, you know, again maybe they they pick the Cubs' pocket and take Jordan Wogu out of Michigan. Um, and again, I have no idea if they actually like these guys. Um, but, you know, I mean, he he would have been a guy, you know, maybe you take there, um, you know, outfielder from Michigan with power and speed. There's a, a player from the Brewers took, Xavier Warren from Central Michigan, who, who's one of the better hitters in the draft, college hitters, position a little bit in question, may be able to catch. Um, let's see, round four, uh, you, I mean, you, know, you could get R.G. Dabovich, who's a reliever from Arizona State. You could get... Uh, you know, you know, again, if you could go somewhat over slot, you know, maybe you find a way to sign A.G. Vukovic, the high school slugger from Wisconsin. Um, you know, Ian Bedell from Missouri is a guy who dropped. I don't know if he's going to be over slot, but he's, he's a pitchability guy who had a, gr- a really good um, cape. And then in the fifth round, uh, I mean, you know, maybe you get Shane Drohan, who the Red Sox took a few picks later, lefty out of Florida State. Uh, maybe you get Hayden Cantrell, shortstop the Brewers took out of Louisiana Lafayette. So, I mean, you know, maybe it looks something like that. Uh, I mean, that's just, you know, random speculation. Looking at that type of draft class, do you still prefer the way the White Sox went? I do, but, I mean, again, I think it just it, – it's 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 like building a portfolio. It's just like how much risk do you want to take? You know, the White Sox put – you know the vast majority of their investment in two players, and they could get two really good. I mean, they they got two again. Our rankings are not the be all end all, but but if you if if we nailed the draft perfectly, the White Sox got two of the top eighteen players in the draft. They're the only team that got two players in the top twenty. Um, so that's good. And if you know, and but if you prefer to spread your risk, then you would kind of take slot guys with each pick. I I I, I don't mind the crochet Kelly strategy. I mean. I do think, on one hand, there's talent in every round. There's, you know, it's a shame we only had five rounds this year. But at the same time, I mean, look at what the hit rate are, is on, like, a typical third-round pick. It's not real high. Um, you know, look at the hit rate on a typical fourth-round pick. It's not real high. Um, so, I, I like, again, I think you win with stars. And I'm not saying – I mean, this was kind of an extreme approach because you only had five picks. If we had – a normal draft or, say, a 10-round draft, I think you would have seen them maybe go slots in rounds three and four, 
and five, and, you know, and then go cheap after that. But you couldn't. But I, I, I don't mind this. I mean, like I said, the the only risk if you go if you take this extreme approach, and you're going to have more than a five round draft in most years. But if you do the extreme all in on your first two or three picks approach every year, unless you're just I mean, killing it, scouting, and getting lucky too, you're probably not going to have much depth. But again, I think you win with stars. I, I don't mind this. And, and to be honest, in a five-round draft, why not? Like, I mean, I mean, how many big leaguers are you really going to get out of a five-round draft? Um, you know, I mean, if you're lucky too. Um, you know, and I had this. You know, I think you've heard me say this before. I mean, we do. You know, if you look at typical draft, you know, everybody gets excited. Their first-round pick looks like a looks like a, a future, you know, all-star and all that. But the reality of it is, is when, when you look at a normal 40-round draft, you have essentially, you know, five or six, you know, big stars. And then if you're lucky, a couple dozen solid players who are regulars for five years or in the rotation for in the bullpen for five years. And there's guys who are, you know, careers bounce up and down. Um, you know, just, just by, you know, like we, every year they have me do kind of a – a redraft story, like from 10 years before, go back. And, and so this year I look back at the 2010 draft, which was a normal draft, you know, plenty of rounds, plenty of picks. And there were 32 first-round picks. And if you were redrafting today, Adam Duvall would be a first-round pick, which it seems crazy. And, you know, and I'm just looking at this. You know, I mean, the guys, you know, the guys who made my, my 32 first-round picks, there's a ninth round or 31st round or a ninth round or a 19th rounder a fourth round or another fourth, 11th, 8th, 8th, 7th, 12th, 27th, 23rd, 11th. So, like, I, you know, I just, you know, if you're talking about guys outside the, the top picks, in rounds three, four, and five, three of those guys, like, wound up becoming good players. So that would be three out of, what, about 90 players. So, like, you have a one in 30, like, basically, I mean, that, that's just one year. But let's say roughly like a 1-30, in 1-25 in chance of getting a good big leaguer in rounds 3, 4, or 5. You know, if those are my odds in a five-round draft, if I if – I, I didn't totally pump. Let's say I just take my resources out of those rounds to go get a second first-round pick. That makes a lot of sense to me. The undrafted market. Some teams were quick out of the gate signing college seniors and even prep players for $20,000, which was surprising to me. The White Sox so far started with the friends and family route, signing Nick Madrigal's brother Ty and the groundskeeper's son, and they just recently announced they signed Texas outfielder Duke Ellis. Uh, are you expecting more activity across the league? Because, again, like the Cubs were hot out of the gate. The Padres made a lot of signings as well. Um, once uh, things opened as far as the undrafted market, are you expecting more activity in the undrafted market? I'm not. Um, I actually had a couple teams tell me they think the market has pretty much played itself out in a week. That you may see signings here and there, but they think most of the quality players, to use that term a little loosely, have already been accounted for. The guys who are going to sign, sign, and I can't remember if we talked about this before the draft, and I was totally wrong on this. I, I, I thought for a variety of reasons, you know, be it you know, economic uncertainty, fewer minor league teams, who knows what college baseball is going to look like next year? Um, you know whether you're going to get an opportunity. Next year's draft is going to be clogged up. You know if everybody goes back to school, all the guys who would have gone around six to twenty this year are going to be back in next year's draft, competing with the guys who'd go around six to twenty normally next year. You know the guys who go back are going to be a year older, and teams don't value older players in the draft. Um, and, and I do think, unfortunately, a lot of guys who would have you know gotten probably six-figure bonuses this year who made the choice to go back to school. 
are not going to get a chance to play pro ball. They're going to they're have a rude awakening next year because there's not going to be room for everybody. There's not going to be enough picks. There's not going to be enough minor league teams. But all that said, so I, I thought we'd have a decent amount of those guys sign. Like, not all of them, but, like, you know, if it, I think I've quoted this number before. You know, 395 players last year got six-figure bonuses after the fifth round. And I thought, okay, like, hundreds or so of those guys will sign. And <laughs> I wasn't even close. And, and, and I, I started to realize it, it probably wasn't going to happen um, Thursday night, Friday morning, even before they could sign, where there was a player we had on our top 200 list who was a redshirt junior, very talented kid. And, I, and he's Richard Jr., so I fear he's like, you know, kind of like Bailey Horn type of guy, Josh, where, like, good prospect, and he's going to come at a discount because he's already 22, blah, blah, blah. And he apparently turned out a six-figure offer um, to get drafted. And I was like, what? He's going to go back and be 23 next year? You know, wow. And and I had teams tell me that, like, a lot of teams didn't take the extreme approach White Sox did, but did, like like I thought, and, and it was we kind of heard that was going to happen, you take college juniors around – you know, four and five, and you sign them for seventy-five, eighty thousand dollars because you know the leverage is, hey, if you don't get picked, you're getting twenty. Um, you know, if a guy was on the bubble, and I had teams tell me it was a lot harder to find guys to take that than they thought. And 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 as this has played out, um, you know, there was one guy in our top two hundred signed, Kate Emshoff, Kale Emshoff with the um, with the Royals. And other than that, I mean, it's been some, you know, a handful of interesting guys, but it's not. Um, it has not been nearly – I thought there would be more talented players. I thought more of the, the guys who would have gone around 6 to 10, gotten six-figure bonuses, 11 to 15, would sign, and it just hasn't happened. Looking ahead to 2021, again, you alluded to it. Uh, so the NCAA is making adjustments to the roster sizes, and I think that's why a lot of these players are deciding to go back to school. Um, a lot of college seniors are also returning to their programs. Uh, so we may even see – possibly more undrafted signings next year because they have nowhere to go. But again, as you alluded to, Jim, nobody knows how many minor league teams at this moment until minor league baseball, and major league baseball come to an agreement. Uh, there will be. So rosters spots will be, might be tough for them to find. But my quick take on the 2021 draft class, Jim, is you have again, electrifying college starting pitching at the top with Vanderbilt's duo, Kumar rocker and Jack uh, lighter. Uh, and then you have strong middle infielders, both from the college and prep class, which was different from this past class because it was Ed Howard was the clear-cut best shortstop. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of first-round talent in the middle infield for teams to, to browse through or even select in the first round. Looking ahead to next year's class, what do you think about the overall value? Um. <clears throat> I think it's way too early to know because we're we're not the a lot of the high school guys are at the PG National right now, but like the shit the, the shit the summer we're not going to get as many looks at guys and it hasn't really started. I, I just know if you'd asked me last year at this time, the, the high school class looks so much different at the end. I think it's early. I mean, it, it, to to really say it's going to be a good draft or a bad draft. I mean, it looks average-ish to me, I guess, which is an easy thing to say. Um, you, I don't think we're getting many looks at the college guys with no Cape Cod League and no Team USA. You know, most of the players who are headed there have not resurfaced in other summer college leagues. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. You know, it'll be interesting. I mean, I do think it's going to be kind of a – like, one, I'm not convinced we're going to have a 20-round draft. Right now it's a 20-round draft. There's going to be so many things that have to be negotiated that matter more to the union than to stick up for a 20-round draft, that it won't shock me, especially with not getting looks at players, if we have a 10-round draft next year. 
who even knows? Like, I, I still, and I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but, like, it's hard for me to imagine we're going to have college football with, with, with fans in the stands like normal. It's hard for me to imagine. I've got two daughters still in college. Are they really going to be on campus all fall? Is that going to happen? And I think there's a possibility we don't have spring sports next year in college. If, if the coronavirus comes back with a vengeance, I mean, and it's, I mean it's, it's not like it's gone away, but if it comes back and it gets worse in the winter, are, you know, are our campuses going to be open again? Are we going to have spring sports again? Um, so it, it's, it's just hard to look forward. But let's say we do have a 20-round draft. I, I think it's going to be so clogged with the guys who would have gone round 6 to 20 this year and the guys who would have gone 6 to 20 next year. And all these, there's going to be a bunch of freshmen who thought they were going to four-year schools, who now don't have scholarships for them because everybody's coming back who didn't get drafted this year, and those guys are going to wind up at junior college. You're going to have, like, if, if in a typical year, you know, 450 players get drafted in around 6 through 20, you're going to have essentially 1,000 players worthy of those 450 spots, uh, you, know, they, you know, and the rest can only sign for 20. And then if the draft gets cut to 10 – you're going to have, you know, a thousand players who would have expected, you know, a reasonable chance at a six-figure bonus, and there's going to be 150 spots. So, it, it's. I think that, you know, you, you you throw on top of that, you're not going to get looks at college guys really this summer. Most of them. Who knows what fall baseball is going to look like if it's even going to exist? And you know, if things continue to get worse, yeah, maybe we aren't going to even have, like. There's some other showcases scheduled. I don't know if they're going to be viable. Like we may not. Everybody talked about how this year's draft was going to be affected. But you got you got a normal summer's worth of looks at guys last year, and that's an important part. You, you might have almost no looks at players going into next year's draft. And, and like I said, I'm being doom and gloom, but like the, the real pessimistic view is, what if we don't have a college or high school season again next year? How do you even draft players that you really haven't seen? Yeah, the 2020 draft was definitely impacted, but I think we're going to see a greater impact in 2021, Jim. No question. Especially yeah. on the on the scouting the scouting aspect. And I wish all the major league baseball teams the best of luck cuz I don't know what you're do- why don't you maybe you're at Hoover, Alabama watching the perfect game uh as far as showcase, but after that, I I don't know of any other national showcases that are scheduled for high school players. I think they're going to try to do the East Coast Pro. Um, I have, I'll have. i admit I have not stayed on top of stuff. I don't know if the area code game – I think the area code games, you know, they're hoping to hold them, you know, in August. Um, I, I think East Coast Pro and area code are going to be on top of each other a little bit. Um, but, again, I mean, when you look at cases going up right now, like all over the country – are, are, are we really going to be able to have showcases in six weeks? Um, or are we going to have to shut things down pretty strict? You know, who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not claiming I have the answers. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, like I said, it, it, you could have a scenario that's not implausible where PG Nationals, your only real look at the high school guys, if they have to shut things back down again. And then if, if, if they can't get a handle on it, um, that you know maybe we don't have spring sports again like like this spring like where we had very few of them you maybe that gets shut down you know I, I don't think it's implausible that we don't have a draft I, I cannot imagine the owners who did not want to have a draft this year um, that was their initial proposal to the union are going to want to have a draft if if the teams you know have no looks at the players um, and, and if that were the case. That would just make a huge mess for 2022. Um, so yeah, it's well now we're getting all doom, doom and gloom here. But like, <laughs> it's the, the potential for like like this year's draft was disruptive 
but it was manageable. Next year might be much more difficult to manage for teams. Yeah, absolutely. You're gonna have to go back to freshman year tape for the college guys. But see, I don't even think you can draft. Like, I like I don't think you can really draft on that. Like, like you might have like like if they played this year, you know, you might have video of them, you know, four starts. But like, I I just don't see again. You know, high school players. If if I get to look at them at PG National, and let's say I don't get to look at them again, I, I'm not gonna be comfortable drafting those guys. And if my college guys. I, I the last time I saw him was like for four weeks in 2020 when I wasn't really bearing down on him because they weren't eligible like that. I, I don't know how you would draft. I, I you know, like I, I, I just don't think you'd have enough looks. Right. No, I'm I'm with you. So buckle up, baseball fans, because the 2021 draft class is going to be uh, really interesting. But you should follow Jim on Twitter already. He's at Jim Callis, M.O.B., and not only for his wealth of baseball knowledge, but also taking pictures and giving us updates on his four golden retrievers at home. All doing well. You can hear them barking right now. Yep, I can I can hear them. They're giving us their insight as well in the 2021 draft class. Uh, and you can also read his excellent work at MLB.com and listen to the MLB Pipeline podcast with Jim and Jonathan Mayo. And Jim, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's great talking about this stuff. Uh, you know, always fun and uh I'm, I'm hoping we uh, will have games to talk about at some point in a, in a 2021 draft to talk about. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. So, let's say you're into yoga, or Pilates, or maybe you dabble in gymnastics like me. Either way, you know being flexible is key to doing what you love. That's why Smoothie King created this stretch and flex smoothie for people like us. With whole fruits and organic veggies, plus type 2 collagen, make it part of your daily fitness routine to support flexibility and joint health. So try the stretch and flex smoothie in tart cherry or pineapple kale. Order online today for pickup or delivery. Smoothie King, rule the day. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting them to us at Sox Machine or helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And I'm rejoined on the show with Jim Margulis to answer your questions this week. And Jim, our first question comes from Andrew. And Andrew is asking, Josh has alluded to not being psyched about the quote-unquote upcoming season in some of his tweets. Jim, you've expressed some ambivalence as well. Do you two think you'll be detached from a potential season or will you cautiously embrace a 2020 season? And for Andrew, for the record, I'd be delighted if the game returns and be ready for the moment the season is wiped out by a COVID breakout. Well, Andrew, that is a very balanced take (laughs) embracing a 2020 season. Pumped that it arrives, but also mentally prepared for it to be wiped out. How about you, Jim? 
right now, as far as thinking about covering a 2020 season, not, you know, our earlier discussion, the show was about if a 2020 season would happen. How do you feel about covering a 2020 season? I share his sentiment in that, you know, I would be detached. Um, like I, I wouldn't be really as emotionally involved as I would be for other seasons. I would be excited for, excited for the content <laughs> like it's it'd be nice to have games to write about and action to write about and um you know just uh have white Sox twitter back during games and everything like that and and uh yeah that'd be fun and i'd gladly welcome it back so if you know as much as we might have been uh more bearish and doom and gloom in our earlier segment that does not uh reflect my wishes i would be happy if uh, somehow games were able to be played and you know and i would i would treasure every single one uh not knowing which one's going to be the last but uh i would be detached just because um yeah i don't think i could pretend it was normal and i don't think it'd be good to try to pretend it was normal um you know given that we are documenting the season we're talking about it and we'll be revisiting it years later i imagine um i i think it'd be our job to be just open to how the season unfolds and trying not to put too many preconceived notions and prejudices into the display, try to be as uh, objective as possible and just seeing how people react, how I react, how you react and just documenting what's weird. What isn't weird? Maybe the lack of weirdness. Maybe it seems familiar and we're not, uh, yeah, it's not as weird as we thought it might be. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I would just be concerned with, I guess, just making it as accurate as possible, just how it was, um, how it was different, how it was the same, kind of like the, the fanless game in Baltimore. When when we covered that times, uh, however many games there are, that's kind of what we're looking at. And, uh, it's going to be a weird chapter of baseball history, no matter what. And uh, I would be looking forward to the weirdness because uh, that's basically all you can do in a season like this is just uh, not to put too much hopes on like Lucas Giolito picking up where he left off or, uh, you know, Eloy Jimenez putting it all together. You can't count on any of like any single development holding together in a season like this. You just have to let it play out and just enjoy the fact that there are games to talk about and, something to watch and guys getting reps. That's really the, the big thing. But uh, I, I would just really not get uh, too wrapped up in it because I don't know how I'm going to feel. And I'm just going to let my feelings happen however they are and write about them. Mentally, because I've been trying to pinpoint where I am at the moment, because my tweet was asking other baseball bloggers and podcasters, how are you feeling right now? Like, are you ready to cover a 2020 season? Because back in late February, early March, Jim, we were ramping up. Mm -hmm. We were getting ready to talk about regular season baseball. We were just two, three weeks away from opening day. And that gets canceled and you kind of come off this high as far as excitement going, you know, talking about a brand new season, especially an exciting season for the White Sox. And I always go through this uh, after each season. This is our seventh season podcasting together. I feel I'm in November because in November, my mind is shutting off. We just got done with a regular season and I'm in break mode. 
And I know I'm in break mode through December and January until Soxfest. And I feel like I'm in November and a flick of a switch, pen to the paper, and I got to go from November back to late March, Jim, <laughs> mentally. <laughs> uh, and, and I think I can do that because, you know, we've had this experience and we've covered a lot of bad baseball over the years. Uh, not really interesting baseball at times. So I know that I can get myself pumped up, mm -hmm. but that's where I am mentally that I feel like I'm in November right now, but I know that I'm going to have to be in late March. If both parties decide to have a 2020 season and start spring training 2.0. It kind of feels like literally Groundhog Day to me just because it's kind of the same thing every day, but also it's like permanently two weeks away two weeks away from spring training starting. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how it feels to me. Just uh, no signings to be had. You're not covering anything. You just kind of have to, uh, you know, you, it's basically the part of the schedule where you have to have some ideas because there's no news driving at SoxFest is over uh, and you're just not quite in preview mode because you'll have preview things later as the roster shapes up. So you're just more or less, uh, you're running some ideas that you've had for a while or hoping some news pops up that you can make, you know, maybe big baseball news that you can localize, et cetera. So that's what it's felt like for me for like the last, uh, uh, well, since mid March, basically maybe early April once the, you know, I guess the lack of baseball really, set in but it's been groundhog day just february early february uh always two weeks away from things uh actually players actually taking the field and gearing up for the game and it sucks you know we'll keep using that word but it does but um just yeah you know, i think uh you know i think the the thing that would keep me being most excited about it or yeah, treating it like March, like you mentioned, is just the fact they can get shut down so easily again. That's, I think, gonna, always going to be rattling in the back of your mind, like, make no big plans. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm guessing your podcast schedule wouldn't have this massive arc for the rest of the season. You might have to have, like, a rough schedule, but you'd maybe write it in pencil rather than pen, because all it takes is one outbreak to throw everything off, and as we're seeing with the Phillies and Blue Jays and Lightning and everything else, that those outbreaks, once they happen, they happen. And again, this seems the news seems to be changing every single day. So what we're talking about now, things may be radically different by Tuesday, <laughs> <laughs> or even when this comes out. You know, we'll see what the uh, the first tweets from uh, Bob Nightingale and Jeff Passan say, "Yeah, Monday afternoon, this will be old news, and maybe we're having an emergency podcast to talk about. Oh my gosh, the 2020 season has started, but don't worry if there is a season." We will ramp up our excitement because the White Sox should be good and it's going to be weird and it's going to be chaotic, but chaos could be fun or at least a lot more fun than the baseball that we saw from 2017 and 2018 uh, and the second half of 2019. First half was fun to cover the 2019 White Sox, but after the injuries and eh, whatever, AJ Reed and eh, let's not talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but don't, don't worry. We will get excited when the 2020 season does start. If a season 
does start. But Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Trooper Galactus. And Trooper's asking, given that Gary Crochet was considered a bit of a reach at pick 11 and Jared Kelly way undervalued at pick 47, do you think there's any chance that Kelly gets a larger signing bonus and Crochet winds up under slot? I don't think so. Maybe you'll disagree with me, but I don't think... I would maybe contest the idea that Kelly was undervalued. I mean, he was underdrafted, but I think he was drafted uh, by the White Sox who intend to value him correctly. And, uh, you know, I think Kelly is just a victim of the circumstances. You know, just having a very short prep season, couldn't shake concerns about his breaking ball, couldn't shake concerns about his conditioning, uh, you know, he, you know, from what coaches were saying and uh, in James Fegan's article about uh, Kelly that uh, they're planning on, you know, introducing him for the long haul of the season and, and him being the horse of the staff and never got to show it. And given how risk averse, you know, many teams were in drafting that the high school right hander, uh, they all kind of took a hit. Uh, Mick Abel dropped down to number 15. He was the first one taken, you know, maybe in another draft where, Guys have full seasons. Maybe one of these guys is drafted top 10, but uh, a couple of them went 15 and 24. Bitsko, I think, went 24. And then Kelly uh, fell to 47. But the White Sox, based on what we see from their draft pool and uh, the money they're saving, it looks like they can offer them a bonus around $3 or so, which would put them around number 20 overall, like uh, the slot value of number 20 draft pick. And that sounds about right for a high school right-hander in a season uh, where no prep right-handed pitchers got to show uh, exactly what kind of shape they were in. Trooper, my answer is no. That's Jim Jim nailed it. So uh, I don't expect Jared Kelly to have a bigger signing bonus than Gary Crochet. But Trooper, thank you so much for your question. Our next question is an interesting one. Azenrek is asking, what ballpark food do you miss the most these days? I thought about it, and uh, the one I settled on was a bag of peanuts. Okay. Because it took me back to when the you know, coronavirus was first taking hold. And that was when I was winding down my time in New York and I was trying to figure out like places to go to. Like I had a list of places I wanted to hit before leaving, like my favorite places. And one of them was a beer garden. Uh, Wolf's Beer Garden had a couple locations, but a local local operation. And it was a German beer hall and they had uh, just baskets of peanuts everywhere, you know, communal peanuts. And, you know, just take as many as you want. Put the shells on the floor. Um, you know, <laughs> if you had a peanut allergy, you were out of luck. Uh, and, and and that's exactly the owner said that as much. Like when the place is open and people with peanut allergies said uh, that, uh, you know, I can't go there. He basically had that attitude. And um, yeah, it was a nice place to have a beer and watch a game, especially like you know, when I was white, watching like a White Sox-Yankees game midweek uh, when I was blacked out from you know watching an MLB TV. I'd go down there for one of my stops and watch the game there and have peanuts. And you know, as I was trying to figure out where to go in March you know, before places were being shut down, I thought like I shouldn't go to the beer garden just because I'm not sure about, you know, I just enjoy having a beer, having some peanuts, watching what's on TV. And uh I really didn't want to be having communal peanuts at that point when, uh, you know, the pandemic was starting taking hold. And 
that's uh, one that, you know, when games reopen, stadiums reopen, I wonder, you know, when it comes to uh, increased sanitation and so forth, uh, whether that's going to be one of the things that's frowned upon, sharing a bag of peanuts and, uh, you know, dumping shells everywhere you go. Maybe that's just uh, peanuts are not, are not part of the program anymore. So that's what came to mind is, is one that, you know, when baseball resumes and we're able to go back into parks, uh, will that habit change? And uh, yeah, like you know, when mentioned with the allergies, uh, that might not be a bad thing. There may be some uh, some benefit to uh, making the place more hospitable. People who uh, shied away from ballparks, you know, maybe uh, yeah, if, especially in the case of severe allergies, maybe that works out well for those people. But you know, for my personal experience, it's one where it's going to change a little bit, and uh, I uh, now I now see that. Uh, I'd very much like to have a beer and some peanuts right now and be able to toss the shells wherever I want. Hmm. Jim Margulis does not care if you got peanut allergies, folks. Yep. No. What a monster. <laughs> a, yeah. No, it's uh, <laughs> one of those where I just realize, like, yep, it's just not going to happen. And uh, it might be overdue. Some people are saying it's very overdue, and I don't blame them. <laughs> but uh, just as my personal peanut consumption went, I just, it was. A very relaxing way to enjoy a ball game. Not my number one, uh, you know, it's not it maybe something I did like one game a year, not every game, but uh, something that's uh, that's a habit that might change and it might be a thing that's uh, very much worth changing. Peanuts is the only time, the only time I actually eat peanuts is at the ballpark. I don't eat peanuts at home. So I, I understand where you're coming from. I, I really do. Like if... That whole sensation of crushing a peanut in your hand and popping the nuts, you know, uh, in your mouth and washing it down with the beer. Yeah, I don't do that at home. So that that's a good one. That's a that's a good ballpark food that you would miss uh, while we're not playing baseball. Mine is pretty specific for guaranteed rate field, and I miss the elotes. That's what I miss. I have tried to mm. make elotes at home. I suck at making them. They're not even <laughs> close to what they're at the ballpark. And I'm always disappointed. Even if I go to restaurants in Chicago and they have a low taste on the menu and I order them and I'm still disappointed because they're not as good as they are at guaranteed rate field. And elotes are a great summer snack and I, I just can't have the best right now. And, and that makes me a bit sad. So as in rec, that's the ballpark food that I'm missing right now. I am missing elotes. Have you put a call out for our listeners and readers to know if they've had success making homemade elotes? I, I should. I should. I'll do that on Twitter. So if you don't follow me on Twitter, I'm at SoxMachine underscore Josh. I will put out the tweet asking, please help me. With my elote situation, Kim does a really good job making elotes. She is close to what they have at Guarantee Ray Field, but the difference is that they're they're constantly boiling, you know, ears of corn, and they just shuck it right in front of you, and they lay that mayo and cheese on thick, <laughs> and mm. uh, I I just I don't know if it's the wrong kind of mayonnaise. I I, I don't know. It's like. Something is just off when I have them. They're not quite like they are at Guaranteed Rate Field, and it makes me a bit sad. So if you're listening to this and you have a good elotes recipe, definitely hit me up because I am I am missing high-quality elotes right now. It could be, you know, maybe it gets the effect of uh, 
you know, like how some beers taste better than others based on the situation. Hmm. And like, you can have just like, uh, you know, I'm thinking about when I went on my Asian trip, uh, to, uh, uh South Korea and in Japan, and you just have some, some macro lagers in, in either country and they're not very good, but at certain points on a hot day after, you know, uh, you know, hiking or, you know, at a ball game or, or seeing sites or just smelling food and, and just being around all those, uh, smells you're kind of taking in for the first time or treating as a special place that maybe that enhances the taste part as well. Hmm. Possibly. Yes. So don't be too, I mean, uh, it's possible you could also suck at making low taste, <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, I would say keep trying. Don't be hard on yourself. It might be just something that's, you know, the ballpark adds something to the senses that maybe makes it hard to capture in your place. Very true. Very true. Like extra salts in the air or spices or you know, just whatever else is going on that just uh, trigger other parts of your taste buds that you can't quite access without that. We would love to hear what foods you guys missed as well. So definitely hit us up in the comment section of the podcast post at Sox Machine. What ballpark food do you guys miss the most right now? Be great to hear from everyone on what you are missing right now, not being able to go to a ballpark. But as in rec, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for PO Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter or at Socks Machine and help support Socks Machine at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, which our supporters get additional content with every single episode. Also add free episodes too, with the opportunity to ask us uh, questions to our guests like Jim Callis this week. And also we answer additional PO socks questions for them. So if you do enjoy the show and you enjoy the content on the site and you want more, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today. And we are always grateful for your guys' support. I see that we have new supporters that were added this week. Uh, that's always exciting news. Uh, anything especially <laughs> when no games are being played. I do not take that for granted. Yeah. Is there anything coming down the pipe for the Patreon supporters? Uh, not yet. Got some things in the works, but nothing yet to formally announce. All right. So, but again, if you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up but, today. Yeah, before I, yeah, before I uh, finish that thought and it's not a cop out, just more waiting to see what kind of season we have. Cause I have two rough plans for whether there's a spring training or whether there isn't. So I'm in a holding pattern as, as much as everybody else is. Yeah. We're all in holding patterns right now. So, <laughs> uh, but again, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast. A big thank you to Jim Callis of LB.com for joining and recapping as far as the, the White Sox 2020 Major League Baseball draft and also kind of looking ahead to the impacts of the 2021 uh, MLB draft, which it will be much greater uh, impact to the 2021 draft that we will that we saw this year for the 2020 draft. So, yay, looking forward to that. Um, but hopefully, you know, whatever news happens, if it is breaking and we do get a season all of a sudden or – the opposite direction if they decide to cancel the season continue going to socksmachine.com every single day and follow us on twitter to get the latest on the upcoming 2020 season 
If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can describe it in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.